All right, soccer freaks. This is ATL on Fire, the podcast. We're going to be talking all things Atlanta United Football Club. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. It is another episode of ATL on Fire. It's been a hot minute, but we got plenty to talk about. Uh, joined with Dave Katz, as always. How are you doing, Dave? Good. Games are coming fast and furious now, so that's that's good. Yeah, they sure are. And uh, there's, there's no lack of things to talk about with Atlanta United. There's no lack of things to talk about since we had our last podcast coming out of the um, the CCL uh, leg with the Costa Rican side. Uh, we talk about the Philly um, game. We'll talk about our first couple MLS games. Let's uh, also talk about the world of football too. It's been kind of a crazy uh, situation with the European soccer and this, the idea of the Super League coming, going. And now we've even seen uh, some of the backlash with your club uh, today at Old Trafford uh, fans storming the field, not in the, in the best way of protesting, um, but pretty crazy to see the reaction from some of the European fans um, and, you know, the whole thing seemed like, a, you know, a shell from the, from the get-go after about 24 hours. But I don't know, what were your it'd thoughts be, about it'd soccer? It would be a good opportunity to, uh, to go over, you know, our uh, ATL on Fire motto about how, you know, we know uh, a lot about soccer. Um, a lot about cooking. About Atlanta United, a little bit about MLS, but we're going to talk about it all. And in this case, we're going to talk about world football. No doubt. And um, yeah, pretty wild. Um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, I, my take on it was right that you had the two La Liga teams in Real Madrid and Barcelona that are in a ton of financial um, stress right now, really with nothing to lose at all, both, uh, you know, with the fans or saving face um, to try to get some of the other big clubs um, into this idea of a super league. Uh, and you know, break away into a kind of closed model where the revenue sharing wouldn't be, um, you know, with kind of the, the relegation promotion style that European is, has known for, you know, well over a hundred years and uh, wanted to pull up the ladder on uh, really all of the leagues in Europe that, uh, you know, have come and gone. So like a Leeds United, who's been out of the mix for 20 years, that ladder was getting pulled up on them with this idea of the Super League, which is just a smack in the face really to, um, the system that has created European football. If you start as a closed system, that's one thing, like a lot of American sports, but this is how it's worked in Europe for, uh, you know, uh, a long time. And so it was really surprising to see a lot of the English league teams um, join into this. And I think the, what we saw at Old Trafford was the idea of these American owners maybe being a little disconnected, um, but financially, kind of joining the bandwagon with these two uh, uh, La Liga clubs because they're like, Hey, yeah, that makes sense. Like why should my players play in the national team if they get injured uh, and I'm paying their salary and X, Y, Z. So I don't know. What were your thoughts? You know, my first 
thought is, you know, we've brought back the Mikey Dobbs rant right there. Mm-hmm. You know, right at the top of the podcast, you know, we'll just call it what it is. But um, so I think you have to, to group the uh, the Italian clubs in there who are part of the leadership. True. You know, Juventus, who's also, I think, more financially in dire straits, um, you know, was part of the leadership. And it actually gives you a, you know, being an American sports fan my whole life, you know, um, you know, growing up in New York, um, I think, you know, you never really think about it in terms of American sports, right? Because that's, nobody ever thinks, you know, the, the American professional team, the New York football giants or whatever is excluding somebody or whatever, but, um, you know, it gives you a different perspective. And the American ownership, um, you know, of the European, you know, soccer teams, which has happened particularly in England, you know, American owners of, Liverpool and American owners of Arsenal and American owners of Manchester United, um, you know, it makes sense to them, right? You know, and this, uh, so the idea here is that, look, you know, they don't want to put their money on the line when you can get relegated, when you can fail to qualify for a super competition, um, you know, they want to stack the odds in their favor completely. This is completely natural. This is what, what happens all the time in American sports. Um, I guess maybe baseball, where you have a huge, huge minor league system, might be the best analogy. You know, where you know if the minor league teams, you know, in Syracuse, New York, and you know, in all these little towns in in Pennsylvania and whatever, if they thought that they could potentially get into you know these things and whatever the major leagues or or competitions, and then suddenly the Yankees and the Mets and the the Phillies were like, no, you can't. Um, that might be the, the, the right analogy for American sports, but it's weird. It doesn't work as an analogy really in American sports yeah. because it doesn't exist. You know, even in the minor league things, it's not like those minor league teams are competing to become major league teams, right. but, um, you know, it's, um, the height of arrogance, right. To say like, look, you know, we're going to form a league of the top teams and because we're the best historically and maybe some of them the best now, um, you know, then that's it, you know, and, and, um, you know, it's interesting, like they included a club like Arsenal, for example, which is a historically great club, but, you know, Arsenal's currently, you know, mid table, right. So um, clearly not a great Or team. Man City that, you know, only in the last decade Man has been City only been good in the last few years. I mean, you people forget but man city got relegated twice they were in the second division just a number of years ago right so man city fans are just happy to be in the premier league you know for a while now now of course Uh, and so you got leads coming home if you haven't watched a documentary on netflix listeners fantastic i don't know which streaming program it's called we're coming home the documentary of the italian owner of uh leads and the the coach uh bielsa who's who's uh Taking them from the championship, unbelievable uh, documentary, and you know, they're mid-table, right? Um, their first year back in the Premier League, and if if you don't know, um, what in 1999 through 2003, Leeds was uh, one of the best teams in England and in Europe. Uh, well, actually, not in Europe because they kept trying to buy the best players in the world to make it to the UEFA Champions League and actually ba- bankrupt themselves in doing so. So at, at their height, they got to a Champions League semifinal. Okay. Um, with Harry Kuehl and Baduka. Baduka. 
Um, they had a great, great Smith. Um, yeah, Smith, Alan Smith was on that team. Um, Boyer was on that team. They had a great team, and and they got to the semifinals. Um, and then after that, you know, financially stretching above their means and imploded, and not just lost the Champions League spots, but also got relegated from the Premier League. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it you know so to I me. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, like, Glazer, obviously, you know, when you're buying a club that's now, what, worth $4 billion, should understand how the, you know, how, how the business works, right? And uh, what makes the, fa- you know, basically your customer, which is the fans, tick. Um, and so it being a business person, I'm not going to give him a pass on, in terms of not understanding that culture. But I think, you know, I think he maybe did and was happy to hide behind the couch as some of the people on ESPN FC were saying like, and be like, Hey, did it work? No, it didn't work. You know, it was, uh, nobody was representing what their, what their cause was, even if they deserve more share of revenue with the UEFA uh, league setup and to make FIFA and UEFA actually look good in this is, is the ironic part as well Two organizations, which I probably wouldn't say are the most ethical. If I uh, was guessing, it's certainly FIFA don't know a lot about UEFA, but FIFA certainly is not the most respectable organization in the world. So when they're, they're looking like peaches out of this, I mean, come on, you, you did not improve your poker hand in trying to negotiate. Well, you know, okay. So, um, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, if you're Manchester United, you're Manchester City or whatever, you get this offer and let's say, we don't really know who's leading it, but let's say it was the Spanish, maybe the Italian clubs that were leading it and they're crap cash strapped because they've made, been poorly financially managed, live above their means for a long time and COVID made it much, much worse, the pandemic. So they're just crazy cash strapped. So to them, fabulous idea. The American owners are like, well, why do you, you know, worry about... Champions League and the revenue, whatever, we could just form our own, you know, great Super League and the, the, the TV money would be astronomical. So once this happens, I don't know if you can blame Manchester City, Manchester United, whatever, Liverpool for going along because you got to say like, look, so if you say, no, I'm not going to do it, right, then, and it goes through, God forbid, right, you could just relegate yourself to the, you know, the wilderness of football for years and years and years. What's amazing is that the German clubs said no. They absolutely said no. Bayern Munich, which of course would have to be one of the teams, I mean, for, you know, historically is way better than, you know, for for the entire period of history. They've been great the entire time. So um, the amazing thing is that the German clubs said no. And, you know, what's amazing about that is the difference. So the German clubs have a rule where, you know, unlike the Premier League clubs, which became publicly traded, which allowed uh, crazy Americans like the Glazers to take over with an audacious bid. I mean, the Glazers didn't have enough money to buy Manchester United at all. They just bought, got enough of the stock, hostile takeover, and then mortgaged it to the hill in order to repay the money that they had. I mean, it was, it was classic, you know, American yeah. finance, you know, craziness. But the German clubs are not allowed to do that. They actually, they can't be completely publicly traded. The club is 51% beholden to the, to the, the supporters, if you will. Yeah. And what was amazing is you see the difference. They said no. And um, I think these big clubs just assumed that their supporters would be like, 
well, yeah, I want to be in the club, you know, in the league with Real Madrid and, and Barcelona and all these things. And what was really remarkable is that you might have thought that the smaller clubs of the world would have rebelled and then some of the fans might have, you know, rebelled against all the bigger clubs in many ways, you know, you know, the one percenters versus, you know, they didn't need to people, but they didn't, what was amazing is they didn't need to, the rebellion happened at Liverpool, Manchester United, Barcelona, Chelsea. Yeah. Nobody wanted it because they were like, we love this, this essence of the game, which is if you don't do well one year, you don't, don't qualify for the Champions League. And if you get really, really bad, you get relegated, right? Um, that's what makes football amazing on the world stage. And, and it was remarkable to see those fans knowing full well what that meant, that they, you know, it means that they don't have a monopoly and whatever. Um, they just chose immediately. It was immediate reaction. They were like, uh-uh, we're not going to do it. And obviously today at Manchester United, you know, it boiled over. They've been really angry at the American ownership for years. And this was just one straw too far. I don't think that the, the protest was really because of the Super League. Yeah, you know, it's about Glazers, yeah. But they just went one too far. And yeah. they're like, get your American effing stupid values out of out the soul of our, of our national game. Yeah, and it was interesting the the storming of the the field because evidently Old Trafford's pretty well um, gated and and se- secure. Been. And so I'm curious what'll come out uh, tomorrow in the news in terms of where the leak was there and in, in you know the the protesters who I think just found their way into a gate. It sounds like, um, and so I some somebody's getting fired. Yeah, one story was that they ripped open a gate. The other story is that somebody on the inside opened a gate. More likely. That is true. Yeah, more likely somebody opened a gate. I don't think you're ripping a gate open. Um, so either either way, there's That's there's somebody who's getting fired. That's capital, right? Yeah. <laughs> People are angry enough. All right, so let's bring it back to our listeners here. Um, we've had four Atlanta United games since our last podcast. We've got um, the Orlando MLS um, opener. Uh, down in Orlando, we had the uh, fire game, which is the home opener for Atlanta United at the Benz. Um, Philly um, in the quarterfinals of the CCL tournament, the first leg. Um, and then uh, the other night on Saturday night, we had the New England match, uh, which was just last night. Yeah. And um, yeah, why don't we why don't we um, move through it um, pretty quickly in terms of at least the Orlando game, because not a lot of things to talk about other than my opinion of that game was Orlando's a solid team, um, good players. Atlanta at least came out, um, held their own under a new coach, a new, um, a new style to play. And I think you started to see it in that game more than you had in the previous Costa Rican side games where there was some structure um, they played strong, they played organized, and not a lot to be overly disappointed with. Not not the most exciting match in the world, but that was my overall take. Yeah, I mean, obviously Orlando has come a long way from when Atlanta United just beat them every single time. Um, they're actually got a good coach, and it, coaching matters. I mean, it's amazing. You get a good coach, and yeah. within one season, they went from never qualifying for the playoffs to actually, you know, more or less a contender. Um, 
And an MLS is like that. There's enough parity that if you get a good coach, that's enough, right? You know, a couple of players, a good coach, and bam, you know. Okay, last night, Bruce Arena. I mean, yeah, a team I mean, that Arena, beat like, seven nothing when they had a crappy coach. Yeah, that that New England team was just the pits, and then Bruce Arena shows up, and within a month has them in the playoffs, right? Yep. When he first joined, and now, you know, um, you know, just to shows you, it's astonishing how a good coach can do it. But anyway, in the Orlando match. Um, you know, I think people were disappointed some, you know, the chatter was that, look, um, you know, zero, zero draw, but, um, you know, I thought Atlanta United under Heinze has looked, um, tactically just miles superior to what we saw under, um, certainly under Steven Glass, but even under DeBoer, um, I think much, much, you know, much more of an aggressive team, particularly out of the back, um, yeah you know, matching up, getting up the field. Um, and and I think you saw that even signs of it in that game, even though um, we didn't really get too many chances, we were in their third, their, the attacking third a lot. We yeah. had a lot of possession and we were in their attacking third on the road against a good Orlando team. Um, I would have said, you know, obviously hindsight, because I know what happened in the next couple of games, but I would have said, you know, really showing signs of a, um, a vast improvement in the side. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely would say our defense as good as um, it should be right now, particularly with um, the most recent joining of Alan Franco. Um, yeah. There was a lot of these games where the opposing team hit the woodwork, including that Orlando game, mm-hmm. if I recall, um, where we, we definitely have gotten lucky in some of those games too. I felt like Orlando definitely probably had the higher quality chances in that game. If I recall, um, I felt like they, they could have um, had the advantage there on winning the game, given the opportunities on goal that they had versus us, even though neither side had a ton of opportunities it seemed pretty, pretty even there, but the, the, the ones that Orlando had were probably a little bit more higher chance on what do they call that rating? Um, you know, I think if you go back to, for example, year two under the Tata regime, you know, there's always rose-colored glasses that people use to look back, right? And obviously, it turned out to be a title-winning side. Um, you know, early on in that season, we were dominating matches, but it was a very aggressive defensive posture. We got up the field and, um, you know, and that allowed us in the back, you know, to basically boss games to keep the the opposing sides in their own half to win the ball, to get some pressure. Right. Um, but, you know, people forget there were a couple of games where we had these just um, epic fails in the back where all of a sudden everybody was up, you know, and, you know, they got breakaways and then people were like LGP misread it or whatever, but it was a very aggressive um, posturing side. And it reminded me a little bit of that, that look, you know, in the early days, the growing pains, when you're being that aggressive defensively, you're going to have moments where you, you look back and you're like, Whoa, wait a second. Somebody just ran, you know, right by and got a breakaway, but you take that, you know, in exchange as a team for dominating the ball, dominating possession and in, in an attacking way, not in a DeBoer, we're going to pass the ball 152 times around the back. So we get possession technically, but this is not that kind of possession. This is quality possession in the opponent's half 
going after people, winning the ball again quickly when you lose it. Um, that kind of sign was really, um, you know, uh, that was really impressive. And I think it, it harkens back to the early days of Tata's regime where it didn't always work. There were moments where we got beat and you were like, oh, you know. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about the game where um, it did work, which is the, the next game against the Chicago Fire, right? We ended up winning uh, three to one. I, mean, just, I actually just think one more example. In that Tata title winning side season, right? When we were going for the supporter shield, right? And we went against, um, it was Toronto in the final regular season game to try to win the supporter shield. Yeah. And we got annihilated in that game. We lost like, yeah, I remember that. Right. Um, and that was a perfect example of what I'm talking about, where in order, in exchange to have an aggressive makeup and to dominate, um, you sometimes can give up, you know, and that team, of course, you know, instantly turned it around fundamentally in the playoffs and rolled through the playoffs and won the whole title. So it, it reminds me of that. Barco Lazo. What did you think of that goal? Um, you know, Golazo. I mean, geez, um, he just hit a cannon, right? And, yeah. you know, the thing that, that I think we even mentioned before, right? Um, Barco in previous seasons has come flying out of the gate and looked great right from the beginning. Um, unfortunately, he's been unable to sustain that. The question is whether it's because, you know, he can't sustain it over time or because of, in a lot of cases, he's had excuses. He went on international duty in Argentina. He got hurt, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, and so the question is sustainability. But, you know, in the early going, he's looked very strong. Yeah. And um, yeah, so obviously an amazing goal. Um, you know, you're not going to get those very often. So I'm going to say it's high quality, just the way that he hit it. You could say it's a little lucky, all of the above. You make your when own luck. Start with the free kick was not so great. And it just what it hit the wall, right? But then he got the yeah. rebound and smashed it, right? But unlike PT Martinez, who would have sailed it over the bar, Barco's free kicks go on frame or into the wall in that case, which would have been on frame, right? And then you make your own luck from there, right? So that's what I hated about PT's free kicks after the 13th one that was oh so close but never went in. Barco, you PT know. over the top. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, if you watch some of Barco's free kicks this year, um, I can't recall one that sailed over the bar or wasn't on frame, right? So keep watching that because, to me, that's a really important sign of a good person taking your free kicks is a lot can happen as long as the ball – is put on frame or is in the mix. So it's not strong enough to kick it over the goal. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> now I've seen enough. That guy can put, put the messy uh, magic on it. I think if he's uh, given the chance and uh, th yeah, the second one I would call total luck, Jake Mulraney, beautiful, look beautiful, but you're never going to see that ever again. And nor is he in his dreams. Um, but yeah, and you had Hyman clean up, clean up the, you know, the the rebound off the keeper there. But it was all about again. I think in that game, you started to see sustained pressure with the system that Heinze has set up, and that was the first game you started to see the ball recycle with purpose. And that's when those those moments started to you know get Jurgen Dom in the corner, cutting it back, and and all that happening. So I don't know 
And and then the the other one again, um, Moreno. I think whipped in across, and I think it ended up being an own goal at the end of the day. The third one, um, and I don't recall the goals, uh, the goal against us um, too well. Do you? In the Chicago game, I don't even remember that how that went down. No, I don't really. I mean, we were so in control that I don't really remember the goal that much. But um, you know, it's interesting when we talked in the previous podcast. You know, and and uh, you were arguing against and I kind of talked you down and I said and you got to notice is that when the ball turns over and the other team is trying to clear out of their back and they play that first ball and the camera first pans and you kind of unfortunately when you're not watching it live and watching on tv you can't really see what's going on there until the camera pans and live you can see that of course going on which is why I like to go to the stadium but um you know, when the camera pans and it goes and there's a guy coming to the ball, checking to the ball, and there's a defender fighting him tooth and nail for that, that's a great sign. And that's what I was telling you. And and you saw it in that game that happened over and over and over and Chicago couldn't get out. Yeah. Sosa particularly has been a guy who's been hard nosed in that, um, you know, center part of the midfield where he's just coming up and stepping and putting pressure. And then you know, you probably aren't paying attention attention to Heinemann very much, but he's doing much of the same work that goes unappreciated uh, off the ball. Well, one well. of the things about Sosa is that, you know, and, and if you're an American soccer fan or a kid trying to play soccer who's listening to the podcast, your podcast listener, um, one of the things you should watch, right? So not only does Sosa is sometimes the guy who's fighting for that ball and identifying the most dangerous guy and getting it. But what's amazing is that he's often not that person. Sometimes it's Miles Robinson coming out of the back. Sometimes um, it was, you know, whoever else. But what was remarkable about his reading of the game is that when those guys step up aggressively to try to win, to try to win the ball, he slips in behind them. You know, so many times when somebody is able to make a spectacular turn and get out of that pressure, you see Sosa just take it right off their feet, right? Because he's looking for that second ball. He knows the vulnerability. He's seeing it in behind. Yeah. Even as a defensive midfielder, he's aggressive a lot of times. But when he's not aggressive, he's reading off and moving behind those other players. And I'm not even talking about when we play out of the back and he goes back sometimes to cover I'm really talking about in a normal flow of a game when, when the ball just turns over, there are times when somebody plays the ball past him. Miles Robinson is running up with the guy and is really aggressive and he just slips into these vulnerable spots. Um, You see it over and over again. And that is magic. Yeah. Um, yeah, particularly the the first three games uh, up until last night, I would say he's been uh, really rock solid. Um, and uh, yeah, anything you want to talk about more on on the the Chicago game? No, I mean I, I think you know that that's the sign of what's what's to come, right? That if you when you get it right and you have those players marked up up out of the back and you can monopolize possession and win the ball on the other opponent's half. You can create good chances and, you know, you can score goals. And, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, unlike Stephen Glass, you know, last year who was saying, oh, we're going to score more goals because I'm giving them much more freedom. You know, the way in the modern game you score more goals is really to win more balls going forward in midfield. 
Yeah. Um, so um, fortunately, I was able to go to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium uh, last Tuesday against the Philadelphia yes. Union. Yes. Uh, it was, yeah, it was so good to be back at a game. Uh, it was, it was awesome. Um, and, you know. I was coaching the night before and I had a work thing the next day and I just couldn't make it happen. Uh, so I was sadly watching on TV and wishing I was Mikey Dobbs. Yeah. And it was um, pure um, joy the first half. Um, you know, the way that the team played uh, was, for me, it just, you know, watching that first half, it was kind of all coming together. I was like, wow, okay, Dave was really right here. Um, they they were knocking it around as good as I've seen Atlanta United do, even in 2018 peak form under Tata. They were moving that ball around. Yes. And it was men against kids uh, at many times in that game. And I just was – Against the supporter shield winning – you know, side that Philadelphia yeah. team. And, and I mean, it really was just dominant, purposeful soccer. It wasn't just Frank DeBoer moving the ball around. They were, they were piercing in and, um, you know, g getting the ball in dangerous situations. And we didn't get the end results um, that, that we wanted in that first half. And that's when I should have known as a soccer player, whenever you have a dominant first half, watch any EPL game, anytime this happens, I don't know. That's when you go to Vegas and put down a real big bet against your own team or the team that's dominating because, um, yeah, sure well, enough. You're playing a good side and, you know, you dominate but fail to capitalize and turn that into goals. You know the, the opponent's coach, if there's anywhere good and the side is anywhere good, they're going to make some adjustment, right? Yeah. And when you make the adjustment, you know. But I don't even know that they made an adjustment because in the, in the second half um, – we came out and were again moving the ball with possession and purpose for the first, I don't know, was it 10 minutes um, before they scored on us? And really, I mean, you know, the goal was just a mental breakdown on a, a set piece, which is a corner kick where it was clear, just there was a moment of lack of urgency of, I don't know who, I, I have to go back and look at the replay, but there's no way that ball should squeak through at you know head or shoulder level whatever it was and get to the back post um that ball needs to have a head on it or a body on it and it's simple as that and you know any team all day long you, you watch that in europe that should never happen or a ball that playable shouldn't be um you know have some part of the body uh, on it from a defender so from that point on um you know, the game turned in, in many ways from the uh, the heads going down for a second and letting, you know, Philadelphia take advantage of the moment from the referee and little cheeky falls and, and just almost disturbing um, faking at, at some point. I've lost my voice for a week because I was not saying nice things to the referee. Uh, but you know, it was our own, it was our own undoing at the end of the day. Wait, here's a moment to pause and say, so, you know, in our fancy schmancy seats, right, they now have unlimited food and drink. Mm. So how much money did Mercedes-Benz lose on Mikey Dobbs in that game? <laughs> well, thankfully, they did have a nice selection of uh, Coronas and, and IPAs, and I, I stuck with the Corona. So it's relatively okay. Um in, in the, uh, the the finances of things there, but uh, yeah, had had a great time. I mean, I think 
it definitely turned south when who was it the Martinez guy who's number uh, eight for Philly was just I mean completely faking I mean all okay, day long. That, that's that's the end part, right? Let Let's talk about the the the, the moment after we I'm getting heated. Goal, sorry, right? Um, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me, and you know, the first thing that I have seen that um, you know that is not good about what Heinz uh, has shown. Um, you know, so the team completely lost their mind. Yeah. You would have thought that it was uh, a second leg of, of an elimination game or a single elimination like a, you know, uh, a U.S. Open Cup match, a single elimination and you're out. You know, because so all of a sudden everybody was going forward trying to get the equalizer, right? Um, which is – what happens to teams that don't have, you know, confidence that don't, you know, don't think, you know, don't have the experience or whatever, but um, that I don't think is necessarily Heinz. There's so many new players, blah, 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 blah. But Heinz fed into it, right. That he substituted a forward on for one of the backs and went to three in the back immediately. Why? You're, as you just talked about, we dominated the proceedings for, you know, 55 minutes or whatever yeah. it was, 60 minutes. Why in the world? I mean, if, if I were Heinz at that moment, I would say, everybody relax. We've been dominating the match. Keep it up. We'll get the goals, right? Yeah. You know, but he immediately made an offensive for defensive sub and just fed right into the frenzy and became he was pumped up man he was in he was in the mercedes benz for the first time he had fans give the guy a break man it, it seems like a mikey dobbs style you would have <laughs> loved that right like <laughs> i did man i was loving everything about that game up until uh up until the second goal really which if you go back and look if i recall the second goal was literally a, a miscommunication between the two players. You got it. I got it. No, nobody's got it. And then it, it went through to uh, nobody back. Yeah, right? but we had it covered. I mean, one of those two players, one hundred percent, could have gotten to that ball first. Oh, sure, sure. But but they they, they, they weren't. Back, so as soon as they made a mistake, it was just lights it, out. Co- correct. Yeah, lights out. Once once it was, uh, once it was in their uh, in, yeah. in their possession, gone. Um, and you know, the interesting thing is, you know, you say, all right, well, this is maybe where Heinz uh, hasn't had the experience, right. You know, as a coach, you know, um, when you're, when you got the team and you're like, look, this is what we're trying to do and it's going so well. And then you concede a flute goal and then you're like, well, damn it. You know, let's get it back. Let's go, whatever. Um, you know, a, a veteran coach would say at that moment, you know, we've been through the ringer, right. Everybody relax. You know, I remember, um, you know, it was a Liverpool Champions League final when they just got annihilated by AC Milan in the first half. And it was like two goals and like a heartbeat. And um, Benitez, who was the coach of Liverpool at the time, brought on a extra defensive midfielder and took off a forward after going down two goals. And I think I, you know, this person next to me, we were watching it at the brew house at the time was like, that is madness. How can you take off an attacker when you just conceded two goals? And I think, 
I said, actually, I think it's brilliant technically because they're getting a little overrun in midfield. And if they're going to have any chance of coming back, they've got to win it from there or whatever. And it totally worked. And they came back, you know, in a historic fashion to win that Champions League final in a crazy comeback. But that's a veteran coach who didn't panic, you know, when, when you know, in a cup tie, you know, in a two-legged, you know, cup tie where you give up a goal. And there was no need for Atlanta to panic. Um, no, you know, there wasn't. Yeah. And the third goal was just, um, you know, a, a complete realization of kind of a, the team losing their, their focus. Um, well, as soon as you give up the second goal for having panicked and Heinz having fed into that by making what I think is clearly the wrong substitution at that moment, feeding into the whole psychosis of his team. Um, then once you give up the second goal, then people really lose their mind and they're like, oh my God, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you saw that. Yeah. But um, yeah, as far as a game that uh, we, we've lost and me being happy, like it was, it was odd. I was, I was still buzzing in terms of the upside of what the, the potential is this season or even into next. If, if this is a reminiscent season to 2017 and we can go on to do great things, next season by figuring some things out with these younger players. I'm cool with that. And, you know, if, if it works out where we even do better, fantastic. But it kind of reminds you of the first game under Tata at Georgia tech, where we came out, we were just expecting you know, hopefully a miracle stay in a game where expansion side first ever game. And um, we dominated the proceedings for the entire game. People forget that New York came back and beat us two to one in that yeah. game. Yeah. Right? Um, and it was a disaster or whatever, but you, you kind of felt this, you know, good feeling about it. You're like, wow, we can actually yeah. gift it after people. And it's just a matter of time. And you kind of feel that way a little bit about a, that the, the moves that they made with, you know, the, you know, um, the front office, Bocanegra and Eels. Um, and, and then also with, with the coaching, you know, and I'll go back to a moment you said before you were talking about Mulroney and, you know, the luck of his you know, goal or whatever. And I think he represents what we did wrong as a front office last year. We got over cocky and we're like, look, we just need to have, you know, blazing athletes or whatever. And we got all of these players who were super fast and super strong and couldn't play at all. Right. Um, and they've corrected a lot of those mistakes, but I think Mulroney, it's maybe a remnant a remnant of those mistakes yeah um one of the things we haven't talked about is uh martinez through through these games and what's been your take on his progression from being subbed in late in games to getting his first full 90 minutes um in that uh with that, that was in the uh philly game correct yeah um you know the interesting thing is that um you know Prior to the Chicago game in the two legs of the CCL and in Orlando, it looked to me like it was going to be a really long <coughs> road. Um, you know, he just seems so timid and so afraid of, you know, re-injuring or whatever. And one of the problems you have when you have a player coming back from ACL it's not just whether or not, you know, you're fast enough, strong enough or whatever, but also mentally whether you trust it or not. And it didn't yeah. look like to me like he was trusting it all, at all. Uh, and I'm like, ooh, it's going to be a long road. But in the Chicago game was the first time where I looked like 
oh, well, maybe not. Maybe he does trust it a little bit. Maybe a couple of games in, you finally saw him doing, you know, Joseph Martinez kind of things. Um, and that gave me some hope. Yeah, I watched an ESPN FC interview with him. Um, I think it was probably just before that Orlando game, maybe the week before, with um, his his uh, um, Venezuelan um, compatriot. What's the guy, Ali, uh, on ESPN yeah, FC? And it was it was pretty telling in terms of wow, you can you can only fake so much when you're in an interview. He was very unsure of where he was with his ability to come back full speed. And it, it was blatant in that interview with um, the way he was answering questions. Um, and it was very clear to me when he had his moments in Orlando and even the CCL games against the Costa Rican side, he was just, there, it was going to be a long road. And I think it still will be. Now, come around the Philly game, I felt like he started to get himself more involved in these games. And even the game against New England last night, I think he had some moments where his involvement um, is starting to show some of the signs of the old Joseph Martinez. And, you know, an ACL injury, as you know, Dave, is not a, a easy thing to recover from. So I think the way that he's been managed into these games um, has been the right approach as well. So the fact that he got his first 90 minutes against uh, Philadelphia. I thought overall he looked great. He was, um, he slotted Moreno in for uh, a little pass that should have been a goal. Um, you know, he had a little outside of the left foot shot that um, was, was really solid. He, he, he actually got um, hit in that leg and it was like a little bit of a worrisome moment, but sometimes that's what you need to take the next step of knowing that you can take a legitimate knock and keep moving on. So overall, I think his, his management back into recovery and getting minutes, getting prepared to actually be able to go 90 minutes uh, going forward has been good with Heinze um, all the way up through, through even last night. But I don't know what, what your take was. Yeah. I mean, actually it perfectly segues, segues into something that I wanted to talk about, which is in the entire short, um, history of Atlanta United thus far. We have never had a coach who rotates the squad. We've had some deep squads, um, but we've never had a coach who rotates the squad. Tata didn't do it. DeBoer didn't do it. Steven Glass didn't do it, although he did a little bit maybe. But um, Oh, and we saw that last night. Yeah, and so there, there's a lot of people talking about, well, Heinz is trying to figure out what his best lineup was, whatever that yeah. that didn't strike me as that at all. I think Heinz knows exactly what he thinks his lineup is. He may tweak that long term or whatever, yeah. but he knows exactly what he wants to do. And that was squad rotation, which we've never seen before at Atlanta United. And that was designed, you know, it, it's a remarkably confident thing to do as a manager because usually you would say even if you're a squad rotation manager, um, you say, all right, look, you play the first five games. You try to, you know, you've never managed a side. You haven't had a long time in preseason, right? So you want to get the team going, get them understanding everything, get everybody firing on all cylinders, the kind of games that you had at Chicago, have a few of them, and then start to rotate. But no, uh -uh, right? So he, you know, has that game at Chicago, has a disaster in the Champions League against Philadelphia, right? And you might think he would go right back to exactly what he did at Chicago and try to get another MLS win. And he shows, I think to me, 
maybe a ton of confidence, maybe not deserved, but a ton of confidence and rotated the squad. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's it, what that was. And to some degree, had we not become coming up against a Bruce Arena coach side, we would at minimum got a tie out of that game. Um, but, you know, the minute that, you know, I started to think about the fact that we're playing New England with Bruce at, at coach there, I knew it was going to be a tough game, especially when I saw the starting lineup. I said, boy, this is going to be, it's going to be a long night. And it, it was, I mean, I think we um, scraped our way to getting the tie with the uh, Moreno penalty kick, um, which by the way, I predicted um, that Moreno would get a, get a goal. Um, Dear podcast listeners, you must watch Mikey Dobbs's cooking show that goes along with the podcast. And uh, in that, and we swear to you, it was recorded prior to the uh, game. Mikey re- Dobbs predicted that Moreno would score. It wasn't. That was my only prediction in the uh, in, in the pilot of a new cooking series that I may or may not be able to to commit to. But thought it would be fun during these away games maybe to do um, a little bit of cooking either in the green egg or in the kitchen um, and share some recipes. Uh, so for the first time ever, um, I cooked a brisket on a green egg that I got a week ago. Um, and Dave, as I understand it, is the brisket um, – guru so i i have to talk to you about this maybe after the podcast on some of the mistakes i may have made but um, i have to say you sounded extremely confident for only having had the egg for a week i was really impressed i appreciate that i um you know it's funny like the grill the grill and my cooking meats is something that i just feel it feels very natural to me um and one of the things that you know i've learned just watching other people do this is um especially with these slow cooks um just give it as much time as possible, more time, the better low temperature. And you can't really mess it up um, when, when that's the case. So Dave, what are you eating there? That looks delicious. <laughs> you look like you've been coaching kids and maybe you're a little hungry and starved and multitasking to get a podcast in this evening. I'm eating cheese and crackers. And I have to say for the first time, I'm doing a first on the ATL on fire podcast. I'm drinking a white wine. Ooh. Um, so I, I, I'm drinking a Chateau uh, St. Michel, which I've drank before, the red. Um, this is a Washington State uh, amazing winery. This is their Indian Wells, which is, you know, slightly higher version of their label. Um, but this is a white. This is Chardonnay, which I, I think has just been introduced. The Indian Wells has always been a red wine. Huh. And this is their first white version of it. Um, and it's very nice. It looks good. It looks good. Um, what are you drinking? I'm just drinking the House McManus. That's what we have all the time. Nothing. I, I was. I tried to sneak a Russian River um, that we had upstairs, and Lee is like, "You're not taking that down to the podcast." So <laughs> stuck with McManus tonight. Wow. Yeah, I got shut I down. The nice wine on the. Podcast. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, if you were here, she wouldn't have denied it. But you've decided to do another Zoom next time you're here. We'll we'll crack that thing open. Yeah, dear podcast listeners, Mikey Dobbs and I are having a lot of restraint. We're both vaccinated, but um, haven't had the complete number of weeks for the the vaccine to truly take hold. So we're going to wait another week, and then we'll both be back by the fire again. Yeah. So um, do we're on at the New England game. Um, you know, there was, uh, you know, some, some players, as you said, that were in there that 
or a part of a, a squad rotation, um, you know, and, and right away you saw some of the, um, the things that Heinze is trying to instill were a challenge for some of those players that, um, you know, weren't able to move the ball as quickly, weren't able to, um, I guess, play in that system as well as, as, as we would like. So I don't know. The reason why you know it's a squad rotation and not him trying to figure stuff out is, you know, Miles Robinson doesn't start in the back. And, um, you know, it's very, very clear yeah. that Miles Robinson is going to be the starting back for this team. And you've never seen that ever, right? Tata never, you know, rotated a center back early like that, you know, and get, you know, and it, it should benefit um, them in the long run. Um, in that, and you could say part of the squad rotation might be, you know, because they're playing, they played Saturday, they play again Tuesday in the Champions League. Um, they're staying up in the uh, Northeast to go to um, Philadelphia. But, um, you know, I'm a little bit surprised that it would be just for that because we don't have a good chance of coming back from losing three nothing. Right. That's the other the road. thing. Squad rotation for what? For the CCL odds of us pulling off a miracle? I don't know. That doesn't strike me as that. And so I think to me it's squad rotation for the long run. Hmm. Um, and so yeah. when you see a player like Kubo Torres starting, you say, all right, well, you know, is that because he's doing well or whatever, you know, and we know Joseph Martinez is probably not ready to start. So it's not because Cuba Torres is doing well. I can tell you that. Right. And it seems to me that squad rotation. Yeah. Cuba Torres has never done well. Like I, again, he's, I've, I've never seen anything really overly positive from him at all. He's just a, you know, he's a, a talking of ACLs and things, you know, he, he tore his ACL too. And, He's been a step slow ever since. He's not the same player he used to be. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw it. There was a little bit of a rumor mill happening in the middle of the week uh, about a uh, Chivas player, J.J. Macias, who's a up-and-coming uh, striker for, for that team. Um, I guess his agent was kind of pushing him to be uh, on, uh, on the radar for Atlanta United, but su supposedly it's nothing more than rumors of his agent pushing that um, – you know, that message out there. But at the same time, is to your point, as this is a cold hearted business, like why would we ever get rid of Joseph Martinez? The town loves him. He's our guy. You know, I don't think this is Atlanta United's plan, but um, at the same time, if you can get a 21 year old striker who's on the up and coming, you got to take a look at it. Um, I know that sounds harsh and cold, but that's the business that we're in is winning trophies. And if you don't look at a JJ Macias, then you're doing this club an injustice. I know I may not have some fans out there that like me saying that. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen. And I don't think that that was the long-term agenda from the, the technical directors. Dear podcast listeners, feel free to tweet at ATL on fire. But if you're going to trash the, uh, the podcast, <laughs> please include Mikey Dobbs's name in there. That's Mike Dobbs at, or at Mike Dobbs on Twitter as well. Yeah. Boy. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, you know, I don't think that's going to happen, but I don't, did you catch that rumor at all on the, uh, on the, no, I actually hadn't heard that. Um, yeah. rumor, um, but, um, yeah, I mean, the other one that, that, that I was going to mention, you know, that people forget Rosetto's out there somewhere trying yeah. to get a green card so that he can rejoin the team. Right. And I thought I heard he got, he got one. Am I wrong on that? 
I don't know. I'm pretty sure he did. I want to say I'm 99. percent That's great because that was to make room for yep. international stuff. Yep. Uh, and I think that's the next thing that we should talk about is Alan Franco. But so to make an international slot available for Alan Franco, um, Rosetto, who's also Brazilian, um, <clears throat> had to get a green card um, so that he doesn't count as an international slot. And, yep. um, you know, I think he has promise, you know, um, and I think you might have seen him in that moment instead of a Kubo Torres, because I think he has a way higher upside than Kubo Torres, but um, he's clearly not available yet for us. Yeah, and... Um, and before we talk about Alan Franco, do you know anything about... You're talking about Josetto Jose, um, being more of an offensive threat yeah. than Kubo Torres, right? Yeah, but Alan Franco... Um, okay. Yeah, in terms Before of opening we talk up. about Alan Franco, can we talk about? Do you know anything about Ronald Hernandez? So the the right back, you know, who was supposed to be what a lot of people thought was going to be the starting right back over Brooks Lennon, um, is Ronald Hernandez, who's um, Venezuelan. <laughs> he was at he was in Scotland, and he's. Um, um, basically loaned back from our sister club, Aberdeen in Scotland, to Atlanta United. And he's supposed to be terrific. But even if he's not terrific, and even if you say Brooks Lennon has clearly won the, the starting spot over him, when Brooks Lennon goes down, which he did, you know, in that horrific, you know, yeah. collision. Where he, How is that not a yellow card, by the way? Yeah. They brought in Jack Gurr. And Jack she Gurr played multiple minutes in two games. And – you know, you're like, um, where's Ronald Hernandez? The supposedly starting right back. Yeah, I don't know. I I um I didn't didn't know too much about uh, his, his role in the team, but um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know. That's one that uh, I haven't heard from the the, the press either. Um, I don't know. I fast forward through some of these uh, press sessions that are a little hard to make it through. But I haven't heard that question asked of uh, of Heinz A or anyone in the organization on on you know what's his status. Yeah, because you know, so Ronald Hernandez is supposedly the starting right back for the Venezuelan national team. He's supposed to be legit talent, and I and I get granted during the COVID and whatever he didn't play in um, Scotland for whatever. So I think he hasn't appeared in a, an official match in a it's long. Not Scottish, it's crip. But, uh, you know, I have heard that, you know, I mean, there's not like he's injured or anything. He's And he's in the squad. He's listed on the roster. Mm. And I, I really thought I was expecting that, um, you know, if not in the Champions League, at least when we got to Orlando, I was expecting that Ronald Hernandez would be the starting right back. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I thought, okay, well, maybe Brooks Lennon just totally beat him out, or at least for now. But that clearly is not the case, because if he had just beat him out, then when he goes down, then you'd clearly see Ronald Hernandez. Right. Yeah, play. when Gurr came in, I'm like, who, who is this? Like, I mean, totally off the radar um, substitution. Um, right, and you would think, okay, we're panicking because we don't have any depth at right back, but we're supposed to have two phenomenal right backs. We're supposed to have Ronald Hernandez and – and Brooks Lennon, right? So, yeah. Well, now we've got Gurr as well, so we've really got depth. I mean, I don't know. He, he certainly didn't uh, wet the bed. Gurr, 
Um, it's got to be. I mean, I, 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 I shouldn't say this because we haven't seen any moments of him, but, you know, um, <laughs> there was a certain player who played up top for us last year who uh, <laughs> may not be named. And this has to be the new Gurr. Gurr. Well, we've got Gurr and Goose. That'll, that'll be awesome. Um, yeah, but Alan Franco, I, you know, from the minutes I saw, I thought looked uh, excellent. Um, apparently, we were able to get him signed as a designated player by buying down um, Marcelina Moreno's contract with Tam and Gam. Um, if you want to know what Tam and Gam is, go back to one of our earlier episodes. We've already forgotten what it is ourselves. Um, but it's evidently a way that we can uh, get um, Marcelino oh, Moreno off the books you in an Excel spreadsheet. Admit, you can admit that you're a Tam and Gam expert, and you're just dying to talk about Tam and Gam again. I so am. I. Who doesn't love Tam and Gam? Um, but yeah, so um, uh, apparently that's how we're able to get him signed at a uh, at a salary that um, makes him the the third designated player and Marcelino Moreno not. So and we've been apparently stockpiling yeah. Tam and Gam, which would probably make you very happy. Yeah, that's what I mean, happened with all the Nagby Tam and Gam, and is that we stockpile Tam and Gam to buy an international roster slot, which you can buy. So if you give exchange this Tam and Gam, which is basically monopoly money in MLS, yeah. um, you can exchange it for players, but you can also exchange it for a slot, yeah. a certain number of international slots. So we bought an international slot for yeah. your podcast listeners so that we could be more international than allowed. Yeah. Um, very clever. Yeah. Yeah, I have a feeling whoever whoever our was a monopoly genius as a kid. So you know, whoever our spreadsheet person is at Atlanta United, the official Atlanta United, um, is uh, is somebody who really knows how to move the monopoly uh, board around a bit. Um, because yeah, I, I think every team starts out with out with seven international spots, and I think we may have eight or nine at this point. Um, and and it certainly seems like we're really good at. Um, you know, getting people um, residency here immediately to, to make them non-international players. So um, having that rotation um, open things up is something we're really good at as well. Dave? It's funny because in politics in Georgia, there's, you know, maybe not the friendliest to internationals. Um, but uh, when it comes to Atlanta United, we can get the green cards in a heartbeat. Right. So there's not a problem at all is what you're saying. Apparently not. Yeah. So it's all now. Okay. I'm going to stay away from that. All right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good idea. We don't talk about politics. We talk about it all, but what we mean by all is just football. That's right. So what other players do you want to talk about? Moreno? We, I, I just mentioned his name. I thought he's been playing. Um, okay. Um, he, he's had some moments where he probably could have had some goals. Did things didn't go his way last night. He had a penalty kick put again, put it on frame. Um, wasn't the best penalty kick, but it was low into the corner. That's where you want it. But he goal. earned that penalty kick with a great he, play. Right? He sure did. Yeah. And the thing about Moreno that I just love again, is his body language. And so dear podcast listeners, as Dave says, if you've listened to any of the past ones, 
the one thing I disliked about PT Martinez was his body language. And Moreno has great body language, in my opinion. I think, you know, he keeps his head up. When he's when things don't go his way, he like looks like, really? Are you crazy? And then he moves on and continues playing. Uh, and I really like that about him so far. Um, you know, and I think in, in some games when he's done wrong, he'll kick you in the shin. Uh, and I'm okay with that too. Mikey Dobbs loves the fact when he got totally lost his mind and, you know, retaliated in the Champions League against uh, Monterey. And, you know, it, in fairness, he was completely horribly fouled. And yeah. Around and kicked the guy on the ground. So he doesn't take any gruff either. So, yeah, I like what I'm seeing from him. Uh, we talked about Martinez, Barco. Um, you know, he clearly, I think you touched on this before, he's got to get over the injury bug. Um, let's see where we are mid-season. But obviously he's he's the energizer bunny on the team when he is healthy. Um, he does so much defensively, um, getting back and sneaking in there and, and um, getting the loose balls and turning the momentum our way. There's a lot that he does there that's that's still phenomenal, that is a key ingredient to making this team win. And I think I mentioned it earlier, his free kicks are going to start to show this season where PT was over the crossbar. I think we're going to see some really good Barco Lazos from free kick positions outside the 18. You know, this kid wants to make the, and this kid, this kid has aspirations to make the, you know, the Argentinian national team. And you've got to be somebody who has um, those types of skills in the bag that you're, you know, just know how to play it right into the curling um, free kick into either corner from all sorts of um, uh, places in the field. So I just picture Barco after hours um, on the practice squad, taking those free kicks um, and putting in the hours. And I think it's going to pay off this year. Okay. Dear podcast listener, here's a moment to not to uh, write down the ATL on fire history. I'm going to go with, I agree. Wow. Wow. All right. I like it. And then I want to throw out two other names um, that I want to hear your thoughts on Mikey Dobbs. I want to hear your thoughts on uh, Ibarra and I want to hear your thoughts on George Bellow. Um, Both I'm kind of positive on, Um, you know, I think you heard my commentary on George Bellow after the Costa Rican side. Um, You know, there's definitely some improvement on his defensive work um and i think that's actually kind of paid off a little bit um from what i've seen in in the last couple of games i i don't know um this is this is where you know not drinking um cold beers during these games probably would help my recollection of george bellow um and his performance on d a little bit better but um but just yeah, think I, how much money you made off of mercedes-benz right yeah i know <laughs> so good that it's all inclusive um <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I, I, what well, what is not striking me as a memory here with George Bellow is a lot of offensive creation. Am I wrong on that? Over the last like three games, like I felt like there wasn't as much um, threat from him up on the the top part of the field. So maybe he is staying back a little bit more. If I'm just making an observation on George, but the interesting thing, and I think that you know. Um, you know, for those of you who follow the podcast over the years, right, you know, you'll remember that I was so down on DeBoer with this just 
this blind, you know, we're going to send the two guy outside backs, Bello and uh, Brooks Lennon up, and then they're going to do nothing. And if we don't need them, they just run back and then go forward and then run back. Um, and that is clearly not the case under the Heinze system, right? So those guys are obviously free to go forward and they get forward and they have contributed offensively, but they're not the only ones who are allowed to go forward. When, when, when they, uh, when the opponents try to play through the middle and you have a Sosa or a Martinez or uh, a walks or a Franco challenging for the ball, it's clear that if they're win the ball, they're asked to, you know, continue forward. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. It's a much more dynamic out-of-the-back system. And I guess now that I'm thinking about it, too, is there's a reason as well, which is Moreno has been pushed out there on the left wing the last couple games and thus sucking up that space where Bello uh, would otherwise be. And now it's a little bit more of an occasional overlap when Moreno is pulled inside that you're seeing Bello do that. But Moreno is the one that's trying to um, hook around the outside or – bring it deep into the uh, the corner of the 18 there and try to take somebody on, which we, we've seen over and over again from Moreno uh, the last couple of games. It hasn't been Bello, it's been Moreno. Um, and I guess that's why. And that's another question is, do you feel like that's where Moreno is shining out on the kind of left? You know, the it doesn't seem like it's his natural spot, does it? No, I think that that's, that's the thing that will probably need to be fixed long-term. I, I'm not sure Moreno out wide. You know, if you think about it, right, so we're playing with Sosa, Heinemann, and Ibarra a lot, you know, in the center of the park, um, and Sosa's fantastic. Heinemann has his role and is, is a, a, you know, a real team kind of player, box-to-box, you know, good player. I think Ibarra, to me, has looked 19, just not ready yet. Um, and yeah. uh, But a lot of upside. Yeah, I think he has a lot of upside, but... Um, to me, you know, long term, um, I think you're going to see Marcelino Moreno and um, Barco um, both operating centrally um, in front of Sosa. Um, and, um, you know, when you do that, neither Marcelino Moreno nor Barco are stout defensively, but they both will put in a shift. And, and I think he's trying to figure out whether I need another player in the middle of the park who is stout enough to, you know, to win the midfield. I don't think they will. I think the answer is going to be that you need, you don't need it. Um, and so, you know, they'll probably play those guys through the middle. And if that's the case, then you'll see more of Balo overlapping. And it, it looked to me in the last game that we're not going to see um, Jurgen Dom for uh, quite some time with a ham, hamstring injury, which almost in, in you know, earliest cases is, is probably a month, but it's probably going to be two months before we see him. I don't know. Anytime you see somebody walking off with their hand on the back of their thigh there, that just feels like a minimum month type of recovery. Dave, did you freeze up on me? Uh, you've gone frozen on the podcast. Well, if this is how we have to end the podcast, so be.
right. Thanks for listening. If anybody actually made it this far in the podcast, would love to hear your feedback on Twitter at ATL on fire and tell your friends to subscribe. We are on iTunes, Google play, and really any sort of podcast, uh, platform that you're on. So do listen again. Have a good one.